This committee will convene remotely until the committee is legally authorized to meet in person. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Comments or, or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are, are available via phone call by calling 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. Access code 187-735-7669. Again, 187-735-7669. Then press pound and then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your television or radio. Alternatively, you may submit public comment via email to cgobo.committee at sfgov.org, and it will be forwarded to the committee and will be included as part of the official file. Please note that this meeting is recorded and will be available at sfgovtv.org. Um, Chair McHugh, would you like me to take roll? Yes, please. Member Chu? Absent. Member Larkin? Present. Member Matthews? Present. Chair McHugh? Present. Member Natoli? Absent. Member Pantoja? Present. Member Post? Here. Member Sanderland? Absent. So we have a quorum. The meeting is started at 936. Chair McHugh, would you like me to go on to item two? Yes, please. Opportunity for the public to comment on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction that are not on the agenda. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 187-735-7669, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. Um, I'm just checking to see if there's any anybody with their hand, hand raised. And I don't see anyone. So we can close public comment for that item. Chair McHugh, would you like me to move to item three? Yep. Approval with possible modification of the minutes of the May 24th, 2021 meeting. Motion to approve. Second. Second. 
Okay, I have to go to public speaking for this item. Uh, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 187-735-7669, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. So I'm checking the queue and I do not see anyone with their hand raised. So I'll go on to the vote um, to approve the minutes. Member Chu is absent. Member Larkin? Uh, I approve. Member Matthews? Aye. Chair McHugh? Approved. Vice Chair Natoli is absent. Member Pantoja? Aye. Member Post? Aye. And Member Sa Sanderlin is absent. So the minutes are approved. Chair McHugh, would you like me to move to item four? Yes, please. Thank you. Presentation from various departments about the 2010, 2014, and 2020 earthquake safety and emergency response bonds, liaison report on the earthquake safety and emergency response bonds, and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation. I believe we have uh, Charles Higueras. Yes, thank you. Oh, there you Shall are. I start? Yes, please. Okay, wonderful, thank you. Uh, my name is Charles Higueras. I am acting director for project management for Public Works. Um, I also wear another hat, which is the bond program manager for the earthquake safety and emergency response bond programs, 2010, 14, and now 2020. The uh, title page of this uh, slide deck is the first time actually we're able to depict uh, the 2020 Easter bond and we'll be talking a little bit about that. Uh, it's just launching uh, and so there is uh, good news to share with you, uh, but it's about the other two bonds where we've been substantially involved that uh, we have probably the most content for you this morning. Um, as you know, uh, this bond is meant to address uh, the needs of our first responder departments and facilities uh, so that in the event of any uh, call for service and certainly in the event of a major uh, disaster that uh, our facilities, our personnel are adequately um, enabled to respond with the timeliness uh, that we expect. So historically, these bond programs have been um, in service to both police and fire. Uh, but as well, over time, we have also undertaken projects for the medical examiner. Um, we have taken on projects for other uh, components uh, that I'll describe or that my project managers will describe as we enter into this presentation. Um, we have, just FYI, we have another bond uh, slated for, I believe it's 2027, 
that would be the fourth iteration of this bond program. Um, it's important to underscore for those of you new to the Easter bond that uh, we will continue to um, erode, so to speak, the deficit that has existed historically in response or in regard rather to first responder facilities and infrastructure. Um, and we're doing that each time out. Uh, so let me start here on this next slide with some of some of the highlights and accomplishments. The emergency firefighting water system pump station two construction begins. Um, and not to go into any length here, but as you know, the EFWS um, replaces what was formerly known as the AWSS, the Auxiliary Water Supply System. This is a unique water system uh, in the world, I would even hazard to say, there are so few of them, uh, that provides dedicated high-pressure firefighting water system to enable our fire department to effectively suppress uh, any fires that occur and certainly major uh, fires that uh, that emerge. Uh, that station at the foot of Van Ness in Aquatic Park is a critical component of enabling the system to function as it uh, would need to if ever called upon in the event of a major event. Fire Station 35 uh, is the fireboat station and it is at the uh, Pier 22 and a half it also happens to be an asset within the deployment of emergency firefighting water system as the fireboats not only respond to events uh, in the bay and along the Embarcadero, but are also able to pump water from the bay into our EFWS uh, to supplement or otherwise provide additional water to fight fires. Uh, so this fireboat station, which was for a very long time, um, falling into enormous disrepair is has now been replaced, uh, and we expect an inauguration later this year. Uh, we we do not just the major projects that I've described to you thus far, but we do a lot of smaller projects uh, that are toward that purpose I mentioned of enabling first responders to reliably uh, deploy to calls for service. And so I won't go into the particulars of the projects, but certainly for the police, we've done a number of projects that. Uh, speak to this particular uh, um, uh, ambition we have for improving facilities. Uh, we also have among major projects, uh, the new traffic company and forensic services division project. Uh, that is a project for the police, both for their uh, motorcycle police, not known as the traffic company, uh, but as well for what is shorthand called the crime lab, the, the more uh, appropriate uh, label, if you will, or title for the department is Forensic Service Division. Um, so the, these major projects, which are once in a generation, are falling under the rubric of the CSER bond program. So of course, we're very uh, happy to be associated with this uh, very important work that we deliver for the city. So of course, there are continuing projects, uh, and these are among them, of course, and we have a number of milestones, and I won't go through these per se, because um, I don't want to take up too much of our time this morning. Um, Let's talk about bond sales and appropriation. As you could well imagine, we've appropriated uh, the entirety of both uh, ESER 2010 and ESER 2014. For ESER 2020, uh, we have issued one bond sale uh, for 80.5 million, and uh, there is a second one uh, emerging as we speak. Uh, regarding risks, issues, or concerns on our budget scope or schedule, um, of course, COVID-19 loomed very large. 
in regard to its potential impact to the delivery of construction services, labor, materials, etc. Um, we found, fortunately, and I'll knock on wood uh, on this particular point, that it didn't have quite the disastrous effect that we had feared at the outset of, of COVID. The, there were false premiums that emerged um, in the execution of work because, of course, safety first. Uh, it's very important that our construction sites be absolutely safe and secure. So there were a number of protocols and practices that we um, required be enhanced to ensure the safety of everyone on the site. Um, and it had to do largely with um, orienting people to uh, maintaining certain protocols like the mask wearing, the, the, the distance separation where were practicable, um, and, and the regular cleaning or, or disinfecting uh, to avoid the transmission of the virus. And so we saw some cost spikes in regard to that enhanced uh, insurance assurance of safety and security. Uh, but as I said, not, not to, to the extreme that uh, would have uh, potentially uh, compromised uh, the budgets of these projects. Um, not to say there was an impact, but not of the sort or the magnitude that would compromise the work. Um, and then generally, of course, we know San Francisco is among the most expensive cities in the world to build. And so as time passes and escalation emerges each and every year, we find it a bit more expensive to build. And as we uh, build, um, we, we expect that the budgets we set early on with all the necessary contingencies that, that uh, try to anticipate cost escalations of the marketplace. Um, we've been fortunate that we've been able to manage our funds uh, to achieve the outcomes that we have uh, set uh, from, from the beginning of each of the bond. Uh, particular bond programs. Now, the next uh, several slides will be. Charles? Yes. Charles? Good morning. It's Lauren Post. How are you? Good morning, Commissioner. I, I was hoping if that you and your team wouldn't mind if you took questions, should there be any from committee members as we go through each slide. I know that's not usually the uh, format we do, but I just thought rather than waiting till the end with our questions or comments and then having to go back to this slide or that slide. If you wouldn't mind, if anyone has a question or a comment on each slide, I thought that might be a little more efficient. Is that all right with you? Commissioner, I, I'm totally at your disposal and, and the call of the chair in this regard. Siobhan, would that be all right with you? For this yeah, I think that's a great idea. Okay, thank, thank you. Lauren. you. So that to that to that end, just on the prior slide, I had a quick COVID question for you, Charles. Any um, improvement in sort of what the effects COVID has had on projects since June, when sort of vaccines were widely available, and more people are getting vaccinated? Have have there been any changes or positive, or not really because of the Delta variant? Well, we continue to exercise on the same protocols and practices. Um, uh, they were in large part, quite honestly, um, defined or directed by the health department. Um, uh, we, we've been very fortunate that we've not seen, as I said, a very um, high incident of uh, infection. Uh, they, they still occur, of course. Uh, we're not completely clear of the impact of COVID. And so there are occasional cases that emerge, um, not just on the construction work sites, but frankly, in, in, in city uh, work sites or places of work. Um, but no, we, we're not letting down our guard, if that's maybe the core of your question. No, no, uh, it was, I was hoping just that perhaps 
things have improved a bit in terms of you can get more people on the site, maybe social distancing doesn't need to be quite as rigid. I, I wasn't sure if, if things were easier for you from a project manager, management perspective since June or not really, it's just the same. Well, we, uh, as I hopefully uh, uh, indicated, we, we did not see uh, a marked uh, negative impact to productivity in the workforce. Uh, we were able to maintain uh, you know, the trajectory of the work according to, you know, our best expectations. Um, not to say that, you know, we're not diminished by any particular worker or workers um, becoming ill, but uh, the, the builders with whom we work have been able to, you know, in a, in a sense, uh, mitigate uh, the loss of particular workforce. And as I said, we're not talking about dozens of people. We're talking about like one case here, one case there, et cetera. And then, of course, when that's discovered, then the whole protocol of how you trace that individual's access and exposure to others becomes, you know, the thing. Um, and so I think um, I know that we, our builders have been very resolute about ensuring the safety of their workforce and, 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 and allowing the work to continue without too much um, delay or otherwise uh, negative impact. Okay, thank you. So as has been a custom, uh, I will invite the project managers for each of the particular components of the bond to speak to the status of their work. And with neighborhood fire stations, the project manager is uh, Sherry Katz. So Sherry, if you would please. Yes, thank you, Charles. Um, uh, I am Sherry Katz. I'm the PM for the focus scope component of ESER. Um, and I'll start with uh, ESER 2010. Um, 10 fire stations received uh, 2016. Sure, your audio is cutting out. Is it really? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, That's you better. Hear, you can hear me better now? Okay, good. Um, yeah, I was just saying that the 10 fire stations stay doors under uh, or national garage door um, has completed. Um, if we may go to the next slide, thank you. I'm also going to do ESA 2014. Um, under uh, ESA 2014 fire stations. Sherry, you, you get soft in and out. Do you have a microphone that you can wear or something like that? I do not. I apologize for that. Uh, maybe I'm just try and stay um, close to your computer. Okay. So is this a little better? That's yes. a lot better. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm sitting back. Um, so under fire under Easter 2014, um, there are 15 right. fire stations that received 40 new apparatus pay doors under the drop contract for fire and app, and that final work order was closed out. Um, to give some Context to the focus scope portfolio uh, under Easter 20. Sherry, sorry um, to keep doing this to you, but again, you for me, you keep kind of fading in and out. So I think you need to like come close to your computer and try not to move around so the speaker picks you up consistently. I think what I might do here while Sherry figures out her audio is ask Magdalena Ryer to speak to this current slide. back to the first slide because our projects are combined um yeah if you we could yeah i'll start with 
good morning. <laughs> this is Magdalene Arayo, project manager. And um, I've been managing, you know, the fire station project and fire station five has been completed, uh, awarded a lead gold certificate uh, in December of, uh, um, of 2020. Uh, the project is financially closed, completed. Um, so we can, and the same applies for fire station 16 uh, project turned over completed. And we just recently received a lead gold also. So um, good news on, on both in terms of uh, obtaining the lead uh, gold certification. Uh, the only item that we need to complete on fire station 16 is to issue the final payment. So it's, that's why we stated financial closeout. Next slide, uh, fire station 35, uh, we are anticipating uh, completion this fall uh, and uh, the team is working, um, contractors working very hard on providing the permanent power. Uh, then it will be followed up by testing, balancing and, and then um, turnover to, uh, to the client for move-in. Um, and Pier 26, also in financial closeout, um, we are going to issue final uh, payment um, to Vortex uh, this month, by the end of this month. Next slide. I think, Charles, you wanted to talk about the uh, fire training facility. Thank you, Magdalene. I appreciate that. Um, yes, the neighborhood fire station and support facilities component of the Easter. 2020 bond at 275 adjusted to uh, 270.8 is um, intended principally for the uh, creation of a new training facility for the fire department. Um, we do also, though, expect that we will have funding sufficient for a replacement of fire station number seven. Uh, towards these both these projects, we and others, um, there has been the award uh, of a construction management support services contract. Uh, that contract uh, generally is intended to uh, provide us with uh, a variety of services that we don't have within uh, the context of the city uh, that support us during both design and construction, uh, inclusive of cost estimating, schedule validation, and uh, certain specialty services that are only available through this contract. Um, the fire training facility, as I mentioned, is the largest of the two projects. Uh, we have been involved with programming and we're currently underway with uh, the CEQA study that would, will hopefully yield a determination by January of 2022. Uh, that is an important milestone for any number of reasons, but certainly uh, to be able to successfully secure the acquisition of, of the proposed site. The proposed site is at 1236 Carroll in the southeast section of the city. Uh, the acquisition um, uh, of that site relies on the second bond sale, as I mentioned uh, at the outset of the presentation. A uh, second bond sale is underway currently, um, and uh, the uh, the funding that will um, uh, collect from that second bond, so will enable the acquisition of the site. Um, Charles, before we move to the next slide, I'll, I have some questions on this when you're finished talking about it. Sure. Well, well actually, this would be a good time to stop. So why don't I stop here? Terrific. Thank you. Um, since this is the committee's first real look at this facility, I did have some basic questions just to, to get us familiar with it. I won't be asking this every time. Um, 
what does the MOU between DPW and SFFD provide for exactly? And I know there are MOUs with you all and other departments, but if you could just tell us what is in an MOU, why is this required for projects? Uh, it's a great question. Thank you, Commissioner, for that. Um, in, in, in fact, we, we have a, an MOU uh, for all projects with all departments, or if we have multiple projects with a department, the same MOU will serve the purpose. The purpose is to clearly delineate um, the the role and responsibilities of the city in the form of public works and in the form of the client department, in this case, fire. Uh, we uh, seek to be as transparent in regard to how we will undertake the work and how we understand the participation and the expectations of the fire department in that delivery of the project. Um, and so it is a uh, MOU which we have relied on since 2010. It's been honed to be more reflective of um, changes, changes that we've felt necessary uh, to enhance that definition of role and responsibilities and accountability. Um, you know, we do regularly inform on all aspects of the project as it develops. You know, just parenthetically, um, it's like the, what they say about contracts. If you ever have to go to the contract, you probably have a problem. Um, in, in regard to our relationship with departments, we seek to have them alongside us as closely as we can. Um, it, it makes for a better project. It clearly makes for a better working relationship. And it um, ensures 99% of the time that the final outcome is precisely as expected. Um, and so, yes, the MOU is important, and, and we do live by it. Uh, we do follow its its uh, its uh, instructions, so to speak. Um, but we, frankly, put much more stock in our in our relationship building with the client department, um, which uh, you know is a daily, weekly, monthly endeavor to sustain it. Uh, you work on relationships; you don't take them for granted, and that's uh, how we generally uh, apply ourselves to the work. Great, thank you. Um, how can you talk a little bit about the existing fire training facilities and how this new one will improve on those conditions? In other words, why is this needed? Um, you know what, what? One of the principal drivers of this replacement facility is that the facility that the department has long relied upon on Treasure Island um, is uh, soon to be soon, relatively soon to become available. When I say relatively soon. Uh, by the fall of 2026, uh, the Treasure Island Development Authority uh, is asking the fire department to vacate the island to allow for the continued development of Treasure Island. Um, the current uh, facility for fire training at Treasure Island sits squarely on a very key part of the island uh, that uh, will be relied upon for the future development that will occur at the island. Uh, and so um, we're working towards a completion and inauguration and occupancy of the facility uh, in time to honor that uh, obligation we have to vacate the island by that time. Now, having said that, the island facility has been very serviceable, although it wasn't tailor-made, if you will. It was inherited by the Navy, uh, for, for, for which it was, frankly, uh, sort of a shipboard fire training facility. So. If you were to visit that um, facility at Treasure Island, you, you would understand that a lot of it had to do with fighting fires on ships. 
Um, but the fire department has, since they inherited it, uh, done very well by it, so to speak. That said, it's 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 not uh, what I would call industry standard. Um, and so the uh, obligation to leave the island became a prime opportunity uh, to create a fire training facility that would be industry standard and hopefully among the very best training facilities in the United States. Um, there's also a, another, maybe original, if you will, training facility uh, in the mission at uh, fire station number seven. It's the division of training was historically at that location. For those of you who know the mission district, you, you probably have driven by a very tall building, uh, very small, but very tall building. That's their tower training uh, prop is what they're called. Uh, that forms part of the array of uh, attributes or assets used for training. So effectively two sites, one in the Mission District and the larger one at Treasure Island, both being replaced with a state-of-the-art industry standard, best in the, in the nation facility we expect. Great, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. I noticed in your notes uh, at the end of the report what, what do you mean when you said that the expected costs of the Carroll site acquisition and the project's construction, quote, may require a phased approach? What did you mean by that? Uh, you know, actually, I think that's a bit of a placeholder from a, a slightly uh, earlier time when we were um, trying to understand the cost of the eventual facility. Um, you know, candidly, we've been trying to find a site for years. It's not... Um, as you can well imagine, um, easy to find a five to seven acre site in the city that could entertain the installation of such a facility. Um, and so thankfully we did finally find a site, uh, but I believe at the time uh, that, that those words were written, we were still seeking one out. And at that time, you know, we, we were fearing uh, quite a more substantial uh, cost um, than eventually has emerged. Um, and so we were hedging, quite honestly. We do mean to build this facility once and for all with this bond program. Okay, that I see. That makes sense. I got it. Um, and so, so the fire service, fire station seven, then that will go away in the mission. That land will be used for something else because everything will be consolidated here, right? That makes sense. Well, um, uh, if I could, I'm sorry for inter interrupting you. Um, fire station seven will remain at that location. We will be replacing it, we expect, with a new facility uh, because it is itself um, uh, what I would call desperately in need of, um, of at least a major renovation, if not actually a replacement, um, given how busy that station is among stations in the city. It uh, definitely needs um, better uh, facilities to ensure the, you know, the services that are provided are uh, at the highest level. Um, the division of training, uh, which shares the site with Fire Station 7, um, it, it, it has not yet been discussed or decided as to what will uh, occur with that property. I see. Okay, thanks. So training will be concentrated in the Carroll Street site, but Fire Station 7 will remain as a neighborhood fire station. Probably. Precisely right. Yes. Thank you. And then um, just my last question on this, since uh, the completion date is, as you're showing on the slide, is October 20, 26, since uh, uh, the fire department has to vacate Treasure Island then, 
what could accelerate this schedule so we're not bumping up against the deadline or what could delay this schedule? Realizing you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, anything that keeps you up at night about not making that Treasure Island vacancy deadline? Um, I would say our trajectory towards the, the fall uh, or late fall of 2026 is is comfortable. It's not um, it's not very comfortable, but it doesn't keep me up at night. Um, of course, as we develop the work, we always look for opportunities to, you know, earn efficiencies or economies in its delivery. Uh, I would expect that uh, we, we will find some. Uh, the things that, that could go bump in the night uh, are, you know, uh, unexpected um, events, uh, a major earthquake, uh, God forbid, um, that interrupts uh, the progression of the work, uh, especially if it's during, during construction, uh, a resurgence of a new virus and, and uh, with having more disastrous impact to the, the, um, the productivity of sites. I think um, absent anything as dramatic as that, um, I, I do feel comfortable that the, the, the late fall of 2026 is actionable. Great. Well, thank you, Charles, for answering my questions. We'll look forward to um, watching the progress of this project as it as it continues and builds out. Thank you. Thank you. So going to the next slide, I will turn to Magdalena, who's been the manager of police facilities. Magdalena. Uh, thank you so much, Charles. Uh, hello again. <laughs> so um, very briefly, all these projects uh, have been completed. Uh, final completions uh, for Park and Ingleside, as well as Northern Richmond and Terrible uh, renovation station, uh, police stations were issued. The only one that is still in the financial closeout is Bayview and Tenderloin, and we're anticipating the issuance um, of the final payment uh, sometime uh, this month uh, or beginning of next. So if you have any questions um, uh, for this, but um, the projects are completed, have been completed for quite some time. If there are no questions, then I'm going to turn it over back to um, Sam. Hi, good morning, Madam Chair and committee members. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Sounds good. My name is Samuel Choi, project manager with San Francisco Public Works responsible for the program component of police district stations and support facilities. Happy here uh, to be here today. Uh, before I begin, I would like to introduce Acting Captain David Thalzon from the police department with whom we are, we've been liaisoning on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, as we work on these projects. Um, I, I see that he's also on this call um, as a participant. Um, so since the launch of the Easter 2020 bond program, we've begun work to plan for a number of projects under this component. Uh, first on the list, the Ingleside Police District Station. It's located at the edge of Belvoir Park. It consists of a main building and the second building separated by a courtyard. It was actually first built in 1910, quite a while ago. Uh, a major renovation to the station was completed in 1991 and uh, more recent improvements were completed in 2020 which included critical important upgrades to the mechanical system and the replacement of the emergency generator. SFPD staffing and facility needs, 
will be impacted by the growth in this district, which spans an area from Cesar Chavez all the way down to the San Mateo County line. So this project aims to address the current and future policing programmatic needs and to provide a seismically safe workplace for the men and women who works from uh, the Ingleside station. Sam? In, yes. I'm sorry, I had a couple questions about Ingleside yes, before you get to Lake Merced. Just mm -hmm. Is this a good time? Yes, perfect. Okay, great. Thank you. You answered a lot of them in, in those remarks, so thank you okay. very much. Um, I guess I'll just comment that considering we just made those uh, emergency renovations to the station that, that you delineated, mm -hmm. and now we're going to tear it down and build a new one, this points out to the need, of course, to keep our police stations maintained more frequently than every 100 years. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, a question on, on the new station that's being planned. Um, I think it's great that it's in the park. I have not seen the station myself, but um, as it as it's being planned, will there be, be anything to in, included in the design to make it more um, integrated and interactive with the community, uh, such as maybe a, a, a welcoming and spacious lobby, a community meeting room or two, maybe some outdoor seating. In other words, any other features that we hope our police stations could have that make them a welcoming space for the community they serve, as well, of course, as as uh, enabling them to perform their key safety functions. I, as I said, I've never seen the site, but I, I was pleased to see it was in park. I have no idea how integrated it is into that park or not. But again, now here's an opportunity if we're going to completely rebuild the station that covers so many neighborhoods in the city to really make it a, a community facility that interacts with the community in a friendly way, as well as, of course, allowing its staff to perform their duties. No, thank you for that uh, question or comment. Um, I, I'm taking down notes and we'll be sure to pass it on to the architects as we uh, develop the design of the station with the police department. Uh, but first of all, there there is the current station does have a community meeting room, which I, I'm, I know is in use very frequently and very well used. Um, so the idea um, is to very much maintain that function um, or that pro program within at the new station. Um, as for um, making this a welcoming place, we will need to work with the police department on balancing security and you know how much engagement um, and, and where you know where 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 what, how it would be appropriate to incorporate um, that 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 vision or that or, or that or that ideal. Um, but but yes, those are all great points, and we'll um, and I, and I, I know that um, having worked with the police department in the past. Um, engaging and working with the community is, is very important to them. Hey, Samuel, if I could just add a couple more. Oh, hi, yes. Uh, Commissioner, thank you for that question. It's, it's excellent. It's absolutely on point. Um, we are absolutely wanting to integrate this facility into making it um, community welcoming. You know, one of the thoughts we're talking about, all of our stations really, except Central Station, currently have a community room. But because they were kind of add-ons over the years, they're not always easily accessible for the public without going through police space. So that's something that's gonna be a critical design factor that these facilities can operate independent of the police so that community has access to them. Another idea that we're talking about, again, some of this is you know driven by the funding available. We really like to do a community concession stand as part of the community room because adjacent to the park is a soccer field, baseball fields. So if there's a way within budget we can have this 
kind of ad hoc space that could have refrigerators, kitchens, where the community could manage it, but it would be space that we would provide to the community. Um, again, you're hitting it on point. These have to be welcoming facilities and we, we have to be more engaging. And I think that's a real a priority that Chief Scott's made. And uh, Samuel and his team and Charles have, have really been outstanding listening to these ideas. We, we just gotta you know, make, the, make the money work. But thank you for that question. Great, that's really encouraging to hear. And, and, and thank you very much. I just, here, here's a great opportunity if we are building a new station to really put in some forward-looking design features into it. I realize we're constrained with some of our, excuse me, some of our older facilities, but um, this is this is great. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and let me extend an invitation. If you'd ever like to go to Ingleside, we'd love to show you around. It's pretty historic. Our top floor was actually uh, the hay barn for when we had horses. I mean, that's oh. literally how far back this building goes. Well, thank you. John Goldberg's been very generous in showing me some of the stations, so I may take you up on that. John so is the best. John is the best. Can't, can't <laughs> argue that one. Charles might argue that, but, but I won't. Thank you. thank you. And I just had one last question on this for Samuel before you yes. move on to Lake Merced. Is, can you tell us, what is, it, what is a temporary, the temporary police surge facility that will be yes. built and used while the new station is being constructed. I presume it's somewhere for the officers to work while they don't have a building. But but what is what is that? What does that mean? No, that that's exactly it. Thank you for that question. Um, to, to enable the Ingleside District Police Station replacement project, we will need to build a search facility to house the operations of the current Ingleside Police Station, as you've just said, while that pro while Ingleside is under construction. Um, so right now, one of our biggest challenges on this component is to secure and to find a site which will be large enough to house uh, temporarily modular structures and a complement of parking spaces for police fleet vehicles. Um, so yes, that's precisely what the search facility is or will be. Have we done that before when we've rebuilt other stations? I haven't been part of uh, a project where we had to build a search facility myself, um, but I, I imagine that for whether it's police stations or some other um, a city facility would have had we would have had to accommodate current operations uh, while while construction is happening. Um, you know that's even before COVID. Um, you know, at for a, a critical uh, facility like the police stations, you you want to make sure that you do not sort of put the station on hold during the time when when construction is happening. It, it's, it's, it's very it's very much an active station and a lot's going on. So we want to make sure that um, the, the the police department. Um, the, their needs and the community's needs from from the district um, as being addressed. Yes, of course. Excuse, excuse me, Sam. I can chime in oh, briefly. Yes, please. I know. I, I know. Uh, when they redid Terrell Station mm -hmm. and when they redid um, Richmond Station, they used surge facilities. For Terrell, there's a strip mall in Park Merced, mm. and I don't recall the exact location, but they put modulars out there and they worked out of there while they redid Terrell. And then for Richmond Station, one of the schools was being remodeled and they used the schoolyard during that same period of time. And again, it was just uh, modular structures um, that the, the police worked out of on a very brief period of time uh, while the buildings were being redone. Great. Thank you, John. So we've done this mm -hmm. before. That's all I was asking. If yes. Yes. Great. It, it might be uh, interesting or otherwise informational for the commission to understand that um, bond law does not permit us to lease facilities or properties 
for any project related endeavor, at least not directly lease. Uh, very often a builder will lease construction trailers to execute on the construction of the project. Uh, that's not problematic, uh, but we're precluded. And unfortunately what that does is it um, greatly limits our access to uh, actionable sites that would be good for a surge location. So we have, as we were looking for the longest time for a site for the fire training facility, we have been looking for the longest time for a proper site for a surge facility. The, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, necessary characteristics is that it occur within the patrol district of the Ingleside station. So when you circumscribe the city or otherwise narrow the search to a very particular zone, you're even more uh, inhibited or hampered from finding um, a location. We do have a location that is prospective, um, and but we haven't vetted it completely. Uh, so we're we're hopeful that it could prove to be what we can finally avail ourselves of. Uh, but until such time as we have that certainty, we, we, we're kind of keeping it um, in, in the uh, TBD realm. That's very interesting, Charles. Thank you. And that is a shame that uh, this isn't considered a project cost fundable with bond proceeds. I mean, it is to me, in my eyes, part of the cost of the project in this case. So I guess our city general funds used, I mean, it's just different funds, non-bond funds are used for the, this, this component, is that right? Well, what, what, it, what it basically boils down to is that we have to pay for everything we, we install or build. Whereas we might want to lease the modular structures that will serve as the interim uh, workplaces uh, because it may be financially more um, effective or efficient. We instead would be compelled to buy them, um, which is it's not impossible, right? It, it, it's something we can do, but it just makes the project a little bit more cumbersome as a result. Uh, we we have uh, we have consulted with the city attorney who has consulted with um, a, a very bright mind on the matter of bond law in, in the public realm, and uh, have been advised that no lease costs. Uh, can be um, satisfied with bond funds. So therefore we're not leasing anything. Yeah, so I see, I see why it gets more complicated. Well, thank you, that, that's a shame, but thank you. Thank you, those are my questions on English side, Samuel, thank you. And, and, and thanks John for chiming in. And I, I apologize for not uh, introducing you a little earlier. Uh, Cap, retired Captain John Goldberg, he's my co-manager. Uh, we've, uh, we've hired him to assist on most uh, precisely the police component projects um, on a part-time basis. He's been absolutely a, a, a great um, resource for us, um, given his experience and knowledge about the department and the department's needs. Um, so if you have questions on operations, I, you know, I, um, he, he, he would chime in um, and, and um, he's been um, a, a great uh, partner for uh, Easter Bond program projects. So on, on to the next project, um, the Lake Merced Police Pistol Range Replacement Project. Um, it is located, well, in, in Lake Merced. Oh, it was built first in, in 1942, I believe, and renovated in 1990 to include the construction of an open air firing range, which you see in the photo on this slide. 
there's currently a maintenance program in place focused on repairing uh, those severely corroded overhead truss structures, uh, the bullet capture baffling system, uh, assembly, and, and the mitigation of noise from uh, firearm discharge. Right immediately adjacent to the open air firing range, this facility also consists of a classroom slash administration building. Um, the proposed project here is to replace the open air range with an enclosed structure as well as minimally um, improving accessibility and providing accessibility upgrades to the administration building as required by code. Uh, so the benefit to the neighborhood and the community of this project will be um, mostly the mitigation of noise and enabling the police department to use the, uh, the facility 24-7 um, if need be. Um, any question on this project before I go on to the next one? So it, it's, it's, it won't be moved, Just it's just no, basically no. replacing on-site with a more modern and enclosed quieter facility. That is absolutely correct. So we intend to stay within the same footprint as the current uh, uh, facility. Great, thank Ms. you. Samuel, if I just have one quick comment. Commissioner, I think what's really exciting about this project is really the, the theme of enclosure. The community loves having us. They don't, they're not a big fan of our noise. And unfortunately, due to some of our training standards set by the state, we have to do night shooting for training purposes, which is obviously prudent that officers understand that environment. By enclosing, it's going to eliminate this issue altogether. The other real exciting part of this project is we plan on pivoting to a lead-free uh, training ammunition when this occurs. So it's, it's a better health environment, but uh, it's also for our employees. But, it, but it's also a huge win for our community in the area. Um, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, I lived for decades at 25th and Eucalyptus, and I could hear our range all the way over there. So, uh, and, and you know, it's a range when uh, it's not just one gun firing. So if every lane's operational, you've got everybody firing at the same time. So um, it, it really can magnify the noise. But uh, I think this is a, one of our more exciting projects. I mean, Ingleside's a critical part of our operations, as is this. And then the other thing that's wonderful about this project is by going to an enclosed facility, we'll actually be able to operate 24-7. So as the demand is there, and it could also open up revenue opportunities for the city as allied agencies want to borrow our facility. Um, we could actually charge and, and do cost recovery. So thank you. Thank you, ver thank you very much. Great. The, the Terrell Police Station project, um, the Terrell Police Station was built in 1929 and is considered a historic resource. Um, it's, its most recent structural improvements were completed in 1996. Programmatically, the Terrell Station also suffers uh, functional space and secretes deficiencies, as you can imagine. So this project aims to provide a voluntary structural upgrade to this building which essentially consists of three structures, if you're familiar with this building. Um, this, the engineer, the structural engineer has just completed an assessment of the building and an analysis of the feasibility of meeting our project goals with the allotted budget. Um, so we're currently in conversation with the police department now on whether it is prudent to uh, defer this project until when there is sufficient funding to complete the intent of this project. Um, and we are as as soon as we made the decision with the police department we'll report back to this committee here on this uh, voluntary seismic project and 
lastly, the Mission District Police Station structural improvement project is well underway. It is also a voluntary seismic upgrade project. The station was originally built in 1993 under the 1991 San Francisco Building Code. Um, so the proposed scope um, is to uh, strengthen four of the existing beams located on the exterior of the building. I'm very happy to report that we submitted the building permit application last Thursday, August 10th, for this project. And our plan is to commence construction early next year. Um, given the scope of this project, we will be able to sequence construction in such a manner um, that the mission station will remain in operations during the time that we are um, improving um, or uh, building these, these um, beams on site. And so that's, um, that's a, a nutshell on this component. Good morning, this is uh, Michael Rossetto, if I may. I am the project manager for the police department's traffic company and forensic services division project at 1995 Evans. Uh, if I may continue um, this project, I'm sure many of you are aware its origins are uh, go back quite a long time, I believe, to 2008. And I have been the project manager since the beginning of um, the architectural documents in uh, 2016 under HOK as the lead architect. Uh, later, Clark Construction came on board as the construction manager, general contractor. And construction began on this project, uh, the new construction. We had demolition of the old Parisian a bakery facility on site and new construction began in October of 2019. I am very pleased to report that despite many of the challenges uh, faced by this project, uh, including COVID, which has kept us company for most of construction, we are now in the 23rd of 25 month construction duration and we are approaching substantial completion followed by final completion in late October, at which point the police department and real estate division who has an on-site premises uh, will begin uh, moving in to uh, take ownership and, and finally occupy this facility. I'm pleased to also report that this project is on schedule and on budget. Okay, sorry, that was not my time for questions, Michael. <laughs> sorry. If we could go back to that slide, I do have some questions on that. Thank you. Sure. Um, first of all, I just want to say that I, 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 I'm giving my liaison report as we go along here. I'm not, I don't have a formal report. I'm, I'm including my comments and questions as we go along. Uh, but one thing I did want to say is that that um, Captain Goldberg and 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 a representative Clark gave me a, a very nice tour of this facility in May after we'd all been vaccinated, and um, it, I was very impressed with the facility. And I was particularly impressed, uh, Michael. And I wish you could have joined us. I know you you had planned to, and something came up. But I was very impressed with what I would say. Your your and the team's very resourceful value engineering on this project while still meeting the uh, public safety requirements that, that the building must have. Um, I just, it was pointed out to me some of the ways you would had to cut the budget to save, save the city taxpayers some money, 
yet um, yet bringing a beautiful facility uh, to city employees to uh, have them working in what I would call 21st century working conditions, given what these folks have been working in up till now at the Hall of Justice and at other sites. So thank you for your hard work on, on working within the budget and, and finding some creative solutions when you had to. Um, thank you. Ironically, ironically, I couldn't attend that tour that day because I was having a slight reaction to my uh, vaccination. Gosh, like a lot of us, I guess. Right. You have my sympathies. Um, but anyway, so it, it's a beautiful building. And um, was the uh, TCO issued in July, as you thought it might be when this report was prepared? Yes, it was. It Great. was. Congratulations. So, thank you very much. So right now, uh, furniture systems are moving in and being connected by uh, electrical and low voltage uh, contractors. Uh, so we're, we're progressing uh, very well. Uh, the site security fence is going up. Uh, you can see in this photograph, which is, I can't read the date right now, but it's very recent. It might be from last week. Uh, the, the plaza, which faces the corner of Evans and Toland is complete. Uh, Clark Construction is going to take on the Art Commission's uh, scope for the public art, which will be uh, in, in this rent in this photograph right here. It'll be uh, just to the right uh, and behind where that uh, electrical pole is. Um, so Clark Construction is going to perform the foundation work for that, and the remainder of the art scope will be uh, completed by contractors uh, hired under the uh, the Arts Commission. Um, so the, the project is progressing well, and uh, elements of uh, forensics have, have been out to the facility many times. Uh, we've included uh, forensics uh, in training and installation of some of the key elements, such as a bullet recovery tank uh, recently. So uh, I, I believe the user groups are very excited uh, to move into this facility as well. And you've mentioned in the notes at the end of the report, um, something about that the move of all the city personnel and the services that will be housed in this new building and coming in from several different sites. How's that? There seemed. How's that going to work? And how long will that take? I guess it, it's not just everybody on one day moves in. Right. So um, yes, we we do have a move management consultant, and I am currently working on onboarding the movers. That RFP responses to that RFP uh, came in about three weeks ago. So uh, th that's progressing well. There have been uh, move management meetings with our consultants um, and the uh, various units from the police department. Uh, they're going to be moved at, at different times, most likely over the weekends um, coming up, starting at, at the end of October and, and into no November. Uh, when it comes to the traffic company, that's a little more cut and dry, but with under forensics, both the crime lab and CSI, we have the complexity of, of managing uh, both ammunition and um, and evidence, especially evidence. Um, and so that, that needs to be taken into account and also keeping especially the crime lab and continuous operations where they are right now at, at the shipyard as certain equipment comes up and, and begins to, to uh, be uh, tested to ensure that there's no uh, difficulties with the new uh, facility. So we have to worry about those uh, move management transition type of logistical uh, complexities. Um, and also the, 
at a at a given point in time, and right now that's scheduled to be October 21st, that the, the uh, facility will be declared a secure facility. So it will be uh, after that point, it'll be very difficult, um, or, or special arrangements will be need to be made if anybody, uh, contractors, um, anybody who's not should not be normally at the facility needs to get in to do additional work. So we're trying to troubleshoot and make sure we clear out as many issues as possible so that equipment can come in and, and be uh, up and running to ease the transition from the shipyard over to the new facility. Got it, thank you. It definitely sounds complicated, but but the phase, it sounds like that we're just talking about a phase moving over weeks, not months. Correct. Right, okay, that's great. The last thing I'll say is that for my colleagues on the committee, you'll get a nice view of this building as you're leaving the city on 280, going by the ballpark and then going south on 280 to leave the city. After you cross Cesar Chavez, take a look down to the right, you'll get a very nice bird's eye view of this uh, facility. You can't miss it. It looks like what's in the photo. It's very easy to see, but uh, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. And Commissioner, if I can just make one more addition. Uh, we are currently working on an open house and ribbon cutting ceremony which uh, hopefully uh, you all will certainly be invited. Hopefully you can attend. And, and just one other quick note, I just really want to acknowledge Michael's good work. He has been unbelievable. Uh, I, I think he should be a cop at this point. He knows as much about what we do as we do. Uh, and he knows much more about construction, a very dynamic man. So thank you, Commissioner. More to follow on the open house. Great, thank you, Michael, for that. And uh, for the next uh, slide, I will ask David Meyerson, uh, the project manager for the EFWS, to uh, guide you through the content. Um, I should also hasten to add that um, Public Utilities Commission uh, is principally responsible for the management of all projects that occur within the EFWS. Um, whether 2010, 2014, or, or 2020. Uh, we maintain a very, um, certainly cordial, but a, more importantly, a very precise uh, uh, collaboration as we go forward to ensure that um, the EFWS under PUC management subscribes to all that which the ESER writ large uh, purports to do and its commitment to uh, the voters and the delivery of that work. So with that said, uh, David. And two, uh, quite a few months ago, where the roof was torn off, it has now been reestablished. Um, the work continues, should be done in December 2021. Uh, the only hang up is there are some electrical issues which may extend it further. Uh, we will uh, investigate that and report back. Next slide. Okay, I have a quick question, please. Just one question on that. When when this the project, when pumping station two is done, Charles, does this close out the 2010 bond proceeds? Is this the last project uh, with those proceeds? We put 2010 to bed. Uh, I'll defer to David on that. Yeah, I've been. Uh, hung up on on the closeout of 2010 for both pump station one and pump station two. So I think what's going to happen is uh, there's going to be a time extension established. It, it gets rather complicated, but right now 
um, I have to wait until that contract extension is established. And that is probably going to commission uh, in the next month or so. And as soon as that happens with pump station two, I'll be able to transfer all the um, expenses to the project and and move the uh, encumbrances up to 2014 if that helps. Uh, then I've still got about uh, some few hundred thousand dollars in pump station one, and I'm working on clearing that out. We have uh, more than enough expenses to close it, uh, to close ESER 2010, but uh, for various technical reasons, I'm not able to do so. Okay, I just, you know, it looks, it starts to look a little odd when we're still using bond proceeds that were approved 11 years ago. I just wanna be sure that things are moving along. <laughs> Thank you. So um, we've got additional work going on for Easter 2014. Uh, the Terry Francois Mission Rock Warriors Way work will be uh, soon completed. The um, Clarendon Pipeline Supply Project, unfortunately, is held up in a uh, tree appeal. So as soon as that gets resolved, we'll be able to move forward. But we've lost, I think, seven months uh, to that tree appeal um, waiting to get started. So no work has, has been done there. And 19th Avenue uh, construction isn't uh, quite underway yet. They're doing preparations and it should be started soon. And then over on Easter 2020, more on 19th Avenue uh, was the potable emergency firefighting water system. That went from Sloat up to Vicente. You see the map there. And then um, on Vicente, going from 19th Avenue over to 25th Avenue. So we're able to take advantage of early construction and it was already designed. We had to do a little redesign as we took over uh, work that was already uh, slated there. And um, that work will be going in over the next year or so. So we've, we were able to uh, be opportunistic with that, that opportunity. It's a small, improvement in a larger uh, program, but uh, the opportunity was there, so we took it. And that completes my uh, overview of- David, David okay. I, I just had one question, David. Thank you for that overview. Why uh, do we need potable water in the uh, emergency firefighting system? Why isn't non-potable water sufficient for this system? Um, well, non-potable water would be sufficient, but it's a very non-economical way of doing it. So you would be constructing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of dedicated pipe that would get used once, I don't know, every you know 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. It's, it's an unknown cycle and it just sits and waits. So this method, uh, the pipes are used actively on a daily basis to transfer potable water. And when a fire occurs, there'll be a, an automated shutdown system uh, to enable uh, higher pressurization and do more advanced firefighting. I see. Then I beg your pardon. I obviously didn't understand 
that this is part of our drinking water system. I guess I thought it was a separate system and that purifying the water would be more expensive. But if it's just, if it's part of the citywide potable water system, then of course having a separate non-potable system makes no sense. Correct. Uh, Commissioner, maybe for clarification and, and David might wish to elaborate the since its inception in 1913, um, the entirety of the system has been charged uh, from Hetch Hetchy. So potable water throughout. Um, if there were ever an event that should deplete all of the potable water available to us, uh, thereupon the pump stations become instrumental in uh, drawing water from the bay to charge the system, as, as with the fireboats if called into action as well. Um, so the, that, that is the fallback if our potable supply is ever exhausted. Uh, fair to say, David? Well, for the eastern side of the city, that's true. But for the, the western side, which is the potable emergency firefighting water system, uh, it re really will rely on Lake Merced. If you draw down uh, Sunset Reservoir, then then your water supply will be Lake Merced and it's uh, a couple of billion gallons and it well exceeds the anticipated capacity that will be needed to fight all fires uh, over several days. Thank you both. That's very interesting. I didn't know those facts. Thank you. Great. This uh, next project, which uh, is the 911 call center will be described or discussed um, led by Lisa Zoll, the project manager. Lisa. It, it appears from my seeing the list of participants that Lisa does not have microphone available. So Lisa, if you can hear me, jump in of course and interrupt me, but I'll, I'll speak to it uh, until such time as you jump in. So uh, the 911 call center is located at the city's emergency operations center on Turk Street. I'm sure you all know this building having driven down Turk um, over time. Um, the need for the call center is that the volume of calls to the 911 call center um, basically is, is misaligned with the capacity of the call center to accommodate the correct number of dispatchers. And so this project is meant at its core to provide enough capacity of dispatchers to better align with the volume of 911 Falls. This project is to occur entirely within the confines of uh, 1011 Turk Street. Um, and so in that respect, then uh, it, it won't be evident perhaps to folks uh, that work is uh, occurring within. Um, there will be interim um, or surge uh, facility provided elsewhere, uh, specifically at City Hall. Um, it is currently in design development. It will be the first project other than Mission District Station to uh, emerge from this bond. Um, it is a much smaller project, clearly at 8.9 million. Um, and so, so thus far it's it's tracking favorably, although like with any project we do these days, there is 
the demand for uh, value engineering and or uh, cost cutting in order to better align with the funding source. I'll stop there. Doesn't appear as though Lisa will be able to join us and that's too bad, but uh, I'll do the best I can to respond to any questions you have. I just had a couple, Charles, please, it, it, which was, did you get that cost estimate in July uh, as you'd hoped last month? Uh, we did. And okay. that's why I'm, I'm alluding to um, a misalignment currently that we're hoping to overcome through some judicious value engineering and perhaps some, some scope cuts uh, to, to bring it back within budget. You know, unfortunately, you know, this happens more often than I would like to see, um, in large part driven by the marketplace and how it changes uh, over time uh, from when we initially set the budget. And when we, you know, when we put bonds forward, oftentimes the, 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 the sums of money that we identify for the particular projects are easily two or three years before we even begin construction on those. And so while we've gotten a lot better, I think, at um, being able to anticipate cost escalations through contingencies we build into the initial budget, um, sometimes, um, you know, we, we are we are a little bit more than surprised when th those contingencies prove not enti entirely sufficient, <coughs> excuse me, not entirely sufficient. So that's when we embark upon value engineering and cost cutting to still achieve, uh, you know, the, the functional program that's um, necessary uh, and, 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 and of the avoidance of too much loss of that functional integrity that we are pledged to provide. Right. Thank you. And then last question is, is do you think this two year construction uh, schedule is realistic? This will be wrapped up in by July and. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, no, the cost estimate um, was uh, you talking about the cost estimate um, shown here yes. July 2021. Yeah, no, the, is the construction. Is this a, this two year construction realistic? Oh, yes. Do you think oh, yes. No, um, in two years. I, uh, yes, very much so. Very much so. I think that's, um, as you said, done an especially large project. It, it's um, not as complex, clearly, as building a new building. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that that's a very realistic time frame. Great. Thank you. Next project um, is the disaster response facilities, or more specifically, the Keysar uh, Pavilion uh, renovation or alteration. Um, and for this project, uh, our Recreation and Parks Department is responsible for its management. And here with us, hopefully, uh, on mic will be um, Dan Marr with Recreation and Park Department. Dan. Thanks, Charles. Good morning, Commissioners. Uh, Dan Maurer with the Capital Program at the Recreation and Park Department. Uh, I want to start by saying I know it's probably unique to have a Rec Park Project Manager come on board and talk about ESA bond programs. So, uh, we are really excited to work on this project with Charles and his team. Um, as you're well aware, the Rec and Park Department has been working with DPW for the better half of my career. You know, we've gone through uh, four different bond cycles, and uh, I would say that a lion's share of all our work is working with the Department of Public Works and their project management and design team members. And we plan to continue uh, that positive relationship on this particular project, working with the Department of Public Works uh, engineering and architecture team. Um, this is a really exciting project for the Rec and Park Department and for the ESERBON program. Um, if you're not familiar with the Keysar Pavilion specifically, it's located right on the edge of Golden Gate Park on the Eastern Edge on Stanyan Street, uh, nestled in between the, uh, the Q 
Kizar football soccer stadium. Uh, it's a really unique uh, opportunity and facility here in its location and the fact that it's a, a 45,000 square foot uh, recreation facility, which is nestled between a large uh, parking lot, obviously the football stadium, uh, and we have the park uh, police station as our neighbor. Um, currently the facility uh, is utilized as a kind of a regional recreation facility uh, rather than what one would anticipate as kind of a neighborhood recreation park facility. Um, the building was constructed over many years, but the gymnasium itself was actually constructed back in 1926. Um, and so it is a historic structure and we're engaging with the planning department and the historic preservation commission on this as we develop our concept and design on this project. Um, the back half, as you can see in this picture here, that kind of teal structure, uh, there's actually an annex building that was built in many phases over the years after the gymnasium was built. And that particular facility actually hosts an, uh, our park ranger program where we have approximately 45 park rangers that operate out of that facility and manage our uh, park, ranging, park ranger operations citywide. Um, this uh, facility being so old, it's really a size, one of our worst seismic rated facilities in our portfolio for the Rec and Park Department. And so during a major earthquake, it's envisioned that that facility would actually fall in on itself and create a, a major hazard. Um, the facility is uh, originally uh, uh, is sized so that it was seating roughly about five, a little north of 5,000 uh, occupants in the building. Uh, over the years, we've had to shut down certain areas in the facility because of seismic conditions and structural deficiencies. Um, but the proposed program here is is unique in that we're going to be able to partner with the Department of Emergency, the DEM uh, organization, where the goal here is to renovate this facility and bring it up to a strong seismic rating of 1.5, so it would withstand a major earthquake and could be occupied after a major earthquake. And um, and the goal here is obviously to renovate it and make it seismically safe, but also make it uh, more functional and multi-use programmed uh, in its use. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, once this facility is renovated, it'll, it'll uh, utilize as a recreation facility. And a goal is trying to get it back to more of a, a, a local recreation facility that will service the neighborhoods rather than a regional one-off uh, opportunity. Um, and so maximizing spaces in there for multi-use programming spaces and recreation spaces will be the function from the rec and park side on a day-to-day -day basis. But in the event of an emergency and it needs to be converted, uh, we're working with DEM to convert the spaces and make them multifunctional. Um, in your packages, you'll see that uh, DEM is looking for a facility that uh, they can potentially use in multi a multidiscipline approach and, and areas that we're evaluating is it could be used for a shelter space, a local assistance facility, uh, a point of distribution for commodities, uh, potentially a unified command post, uh, a, list of, uh, a logistic staging area is another opportunity, and then maybe a base camp for mutual aid stage, uh, staging. And as I mentioned on the onset, this facility lends itself not only in the building uh, renovation proposed, but also because of its unique siting and the fact that we have a large open space parking lot, which would help with logistics and circulation. But we also have the stadium adjacent to it, which could also help support uh, the renovation of this facility. Um, 
Right now, we're just getting uh, rolling on the project and we're doing a lot of investigation work and working with other agencies like DEM and the planning department while working with the, the, the design team as well, doing some investigation work and looking at soil conditions and some destructive testing operations to understand exactly what we're dealing with there. Um, so the gymnasium, we're proposing to keep it in its con current configuration. I think at the end of the program, the uh, uh, person driving by wouldn't notice a difference on the gymnasium itself. Uh, being a historic structure, we're, we're being mandated to maintain that. The annex building on the back half of that is actually proposed to be demolished and replaced with uh, a new two-story structure above grade and one below grade. Um, inside these structures, we'll have host uh, shower facilities, multi-restroom facilities, uh, multi-program spaces, um, and then the park rangers will also be occupy this space when we're re uh, renovated as well. They'll occupy the first floor of that teal structure that you see coming out. Um, so again, it's it's renovating this, making uh, maintaining our, our historic asset here and making it a functional facility in the event of an emergency so that it can be utilized by DEM uh, in, a, in a variety of capacities, depending on what the specific emergency is and what their needs are. So that's kind of a high level overview of, of the project. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have at this point. Thank you, Dan. I just have two. One is, is that four-year construction schedule realistic? September, 2025, this will be done. Yeah, yeah we're looking to complete it uh, by you know the fall of 2025. We're hoping to streamline that a bit, uh, depending on the delivery method. Uh, we're exploring um, the possibility of a CMGC process here, which would shave off some time there. Uh, we do have kind of a, a front-end um, buffer with regard to uh, going through the CEQA process. Uh, and and our, our hope and goal is that we can move this project through getting a categorical exemption on the project. In the event that we get pushed a little bit further on the CEQA process, uh, we've buffered in some time at the front end of the project to account for that, so. Great, thank you. And this is for you and Charles. Um, why isn't DPW managing this project? Why is Rec and Parks managing it? I'll take the lead on that one. Um, well, much like uh, the PUC projects, um, those uh, departments that um, are very actively involved in the management and operation of their assets uh, would typically be involved with, um, well, they'd have the prerogative, maybe put it that way, of managing the project themselves. Um, and so, as I say, PUC and Recreation Park are in a comparable kind of uh, context. Um, of course, if uh, Reckon Park had asked Public Works to be the, their agent and advocate for the work, then we would have fulfilled that role. Uh, but in this particular case, um, the Reckon Park Department uh, thought it would wish to do it itself, if you will. Um, and so we, we take no exception to that. We would look forward to a, you know, a similar relationship with Reckon Park in the execution of this project as we have with PUC in the execution of their projects. Um, with the PC project, for example, we we're involved, I believe on a quarterly basis with uh, check-ins uh, with all key parties involved with the work. Um, so we're, you know, reliably kept abreast of what's occurring across, you know, the duration of the work that the PC does. I would imagine or expect as well that we would be so involved with Rec and Park as they execute upon the Keysar project. As Dan noted, the Keysar project is 
clearly not just intended to be a recreation project, but to be in service in the event of any um, disaster or other event that requires the DEM assert the privilege, so to speak, of taking the facility and using it for its purposes for whatever duration of time is required to respond to the event that compels its use. Um, and therein, therefore, has all the attributes of a disaster response facility that would be required um, for that intended purpose, whether as interim housing or shelter or as a command post, as Dan indicated, uh, it needs to be a full on legitimate uh, disaster response facility. And that's part and parcel of this project. Great. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. I, I have a quick question just to clarify that keys are uh, structure is not open to the public right now, correct? It is, it is. Um, again, park rangers are still operating out of the back annex space and the gymnasium is open for recreation. Um, and again, more kind of a, on a regional basis where, you know, local high schools host kind of target basketball or volleyball games and, and others, but uh, it's day-to-day -day operation is substantially less than what you'd find in a neighborhood recreation facility. So you startled me a little with the the earthquake, um, the expectation that the structure would collapse. Is is it the same part of the structure that people are currently using? It, yes, it is. It is. So it's basically uh, on a seismic scale. It's uh, on a one to four. It's actually rated a four, uh, real similar to McLaren Lodge, which is our headquarters. So between those two facilities, those are the are two uh, facilities that are in worse. In our in the worst condition in our arsenal, so to speak. Wow! Uh, but but some of the some of the facility spaces, for instance, the balcony seating in the gymnasium have been off closed off to public access uh, because they've been assessed. Again, uh, we've been working with the Department of Public Works, and we have seismic and structural assessments of the facility uh, through the department structural DPW structural engineering team. So we have that information at hand as we move through this this project renovation. Again, it's uh, again, it's a it's a great opportunity here for both Rec and Park and the city res disaster response uh, um, needs, um, and so yeah, the the urgency of moving this forward is is something that we're excited to to move forward through and get Sounds completed really as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you for that, Dan. Appreciate that. Uh, the next few slides are um, fairly direct, simple recitals on our budget status and financial plan. Uh, the first slide, ESCR 2010, as you could well expect, we have substantially appropriated and expended uh, bond funds uh, toward the uh, realization of its commitment. Um, and we, we stand effectively at completion at 97%. For Easter 2014, as you can also well imagine, we're a little bit less than 97 because of the four-year difference between 2010 and 2014. Um, the the two projects, if you will, that um, are uh, constituting maybe the 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 less than 100% uh, have to do with the completion of the traffic company forensic services division project, which Michael presented to you today. And as well, that work uh, within the EFWS system that Michael, uh, rather, sorry, that David described to you. So we stand there at 85% and are nearing the 100% completion. Easter 2020 is fresh out of the gate. 
we've had one bond sale accomplished and we have a, a second one imminent. Uh, so we're proceeding apace, uh, certainly according to the descriptions offered to you by the, the project managers thus far. Um, and so there we stand at, at 2%. <laughs> so um, I'll stop there. Uh, that concludes our presentation and would ask for any questions that you have. Charles, I just have one on this last slide for 2020. Did you have you gotten your your first 81 million from the 2020 proceeds that you were expecting this month? Um, not uh, short answer, not yet, but we expect it any time now. And you are ready to spend it. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not being facetious, actually. I mean, no, you, I, you, we're always ready to spend. I mean, we're. Um, you know, but for the timing of the access of funds, we're, we're often sort of in a little bit of a back burner, low simmer kind of uh, position because obviously we cannot spend until we have the funds. So yes, with 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 the receipt of the funds, then we can move forward with much more confidence uh, as regards the development of work uh, and the acquisition of that of that site. Um, you know, about half that sum in the second bond sale is going towards the acquisition of the fire training facility site. Great. Well, I just want to thank you and thank my committee members for indulging the presentation today and my questions. Uh, this will only happen once a year. So I thought it was important that we really dig into these projects and, and ask Charles and his team questions so that our, our expectations are managed about costs and schedule and that we understand what these facilities are. Um, and so thank you all for indulging me. I would just say in closing, I want to congratulate uh, Magdalena and her teams for the uh, LEED Gold certification on fire stations 5 and 16 and on the office of the chief medical examiner. Very well done. It's nice to see public facilities get that sort of certification. Um, and I'll, I'll also just add that uh, I walk by Fireboat Station 35 every day and I'm really looking forward to that being done so that that uh, very uh, heavily trafficked promenade is more pleasant for those of us walking on it. When uh, do you expect that fire boat station 20, uh, 35 will be done and we can have our uh, walkway back? Well, we expect it. And thank you so much, uh, Commissioner Lauren. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, uh, well, end of October, beginning of November, uh, sometime this fall, we are trying to improve on that date. Uh, everybody's working so hard <laughs> to beat that date and 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 show a you know sooner move in rather than later. Uh, so very soon. Well, great, thank you. There was a lot of activity out there this morning, so I understand there were a lot of people. We are completing all the utilities that are in the sidewalk. So uh, yes, I, I I saw it's. But it's temporary. <laughs> Just indulge still three more months, and it will will be done. And uh, the sculpture, I think, in my opinion, is spectacular. I, I hope you enjoy <clears throat> looking at it. It's not completed yet. We're still right. waiting for the glass panels uh, to be delivered uh, um, next month uh, that will project uh, the activities of the firefighters, um, historical photographs and current photographs. So I, I think it's, it's a magnificent uh, sculpture. That sounds lovely. Thank you. Well, again, thank you, everybody. I find that uh, DPW's quarterly reports are very informative on all of these projects. So um, keep them coming. And, and thank you to my colleagues on the commission uh, for uh, indulging my questions today. I'm done. Okay. Other questions? Okay. Um, 
Talking about the disaster response facility, um, you mentioned categorical exemption to CEQA. What was the basis for that? Because I'd like to see that maybe other programs, other projects do that too, because the CEQA process can be what? Administratively and time intensive. So what what was the basis for, for asking for that? Doesn't sound like you have it yet, but you are going after it just the same. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's uh, at the discretion of the planning department when uh, they're evaluating uh, the CEQA component of a project. And a lot of it is contingent on the type of renovation that you're doing and the impacts to uh, the project or facility. Um, if if you're able to maintain, for instance, in, the, in this case, the historic integrity of the facility and, and do the improvements without impacting that or mitigating that, uh, uh, an exemption process is is a possible scenario there. If you're making impacts to a facility that uh, are changing um, the significance of a facility, there might be, there potentially would be mitigating uh, requirements attached to the project, and that's when uh, the process, the CEQA process, starts to evolve into either mitigated negative declaration process or a full environmental impact process. Um, and as you suggested, uh, when those doors open, it becomes a very robust and timely, inexpensive process to move yeah. through. And so we do all we can on our projects and development of those projects to try to try to minimize the, the, that requirement and see if we can achieve a, an exemption process through planning. Um, and there's two prongs. There's the CEQA process and historic preservation component that planning administers through this. So we're going through both of those in parallel. So we're we're doing what we can and, and being very sensitive to the approach so that we can minimize that impact. Um, and it's, you said you were using um, construction manager as general contractor, and that might save you some, you're, you're looking at doing that. Correct. And you, and you think that that might save you some time in delivering the project. In what way would that save you some time? Would, would you expect it would do that? So a traditional project is a design, uh, design build, right? And so what that means is that the design team goes through a very robust and detailed process of detailing the drawings and and to a, uh, to 100%. Whereas if you bring a contractor on early on in the process, the actual design process is done in concert with the uh, the contractor. And so you, at that point, one, you save time because you're not having to go through the full design process um, per se. And then uh, also there's value engineering opportunities there when a contractor's on board because they can look at how you're developing something and they can tell you how to build a, a better and less expensive mousetrap, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I know that's the way they promote it. I'm just wondering if you've had practical experience with it that has convinced you that's the truth. Yeah, so I, the design team, we have a very uh, uh, experienced design team on this project with us at the Department of Public Works. Uh, and they, for the most recent project they delivered was the animal care and control facility, which again, almost mirrors this project in, in a lot of ways because it was a historic project and they had to kind of jump through similar hoops that we're having to do now. And they delivered the project through that mechanism and found it very successful and, and uh, are highly recommending moving forward in that fashion when the project allows itself to. Good. Let me ask a quick general technical question of, about CMGC. 
I've seen it in other reports and didn't, didn't understand it as well as I think I should. Um, subcontractor buyout. And if you and if you if you're not prepared to talk about, I'm not putting you on the spot. I'll find out elsewhere. Well, I'm on the spot. I'm hoping Charles can join in on this one too because he's got a, a more robust uh, experience in this realm. I think. Um, sure, Dan. Thanks. Uh, we when we procure CMGC, uh, we typically procure without the sub trades uh, involved. Those are subsequently brought in under the. Um, um, a solicitation of bid. Um, I would say, though, that in recent time, we have begun to see the benefits of having the CMGC enter with uh, specific core trade subs uh, on their team so that they can be involved with um, early uh, or what we call design assist participation in the work. Um, it doesn't guarantee them the scope of work that they would um, provide pre-construction service, uh, but it definitely would provide the project with the insights of very expert trade uh, subcontractors in the development of design. Um, you know, the, the trades have the most skin in the game as regards what actually gets installed in the field. And so being able to uh, collect uh, their wisdom, their recommendations, as we develop the design is um, has real benefit, real, really good outcome we've discovered across many projects. And so, um, as I say, they're involved with that pre-construction. When we get around to saying, okay, this is the scope of that work, let's price it. Um, you know, as I said, it is a competitive situation um, that it emerges by and large. Um, and so we are always looking uh, to be, you know, as uh, responsive to the public dollar spent um, within a competitive environment. Um, that's it in a nutshell. It's a little more complex. We could talk about it at greater length. Yeah. And, and I don't time. want to take the whole committee's time up with this. Let me ask um, one other question. Um, oh, in labeling the phase of the project that you're in, you said pre-planning. I mean, I understand planning, but what does pre-planning mean? Yeah, that's probably a, a, a typo that made it into the document. We're in the planning phase of okay, this project. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is something before planning or yeah, no, post-planning? You know? Yeah, pre-planning is trying to get as many ducks in a row prior to, you know, really initiating the project moving forward. And so I, I think that snuck into the presentation. Um, we're in the planning phase of this and we're putting pen to paper and, and um, moving the project forward. So I apologize for that. Uh, no, I, I just needed to clarify that there's no need to apologize. Um, and Dan, I don't think this is for you going back to the 9-11 call center. In talking about misalignment, I, I didn't get... I didn't understand what that was. And, and Dan, it really wasn't your project. It was. Lisa Zoz. Michael. But that was Lisa Zoz, um, Commissioner. Um, yeah, the misalignment, uh, you know, we're still getting to the bottom of. I believe um, th there was some scope creep, if you will, some aspects of the project that were enhanced. Um, you know, all, all in good faith, so to speak, by the uh, project um, sponsor, the DEM. It's our role to, you know, not reject those without appreciating the cost 
that uh, corresponds to them. And so we are in the in the role of saying, you know, that those elements or those aspects of the project that you wish to enhance it with or maybe aren't now uh, supported by the funding. So we'll need to reconsider those um, as uh, becoming part of the project. Um, so it, it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a check on some of that um, desires the project sponsor has for bringing forward as elements or attributes that they think better serve their purpose. So it's it's a negotiation, if you will, um, uh, across a, a variety of different uh, aspects of, of the project that, that need to, in a sense, uh, find their place so that we can get back to our budget. Um, it's it's not unexpected that that happens as you're beginning to develop a project that you entertain certain ambitions that subsequently have to be shelved or otherwise deferred for another time. Okay. All right. Well, one more overall question, and this is for you, Charles. Have there been delay claims, especially COVID-related delay claims on any of your projects to date? I've spoken a little bit to the city attorney about this, and they seem to think that they've got it under control, that they sent a letter out to different contractors explaining to them the city's position on this and the fact that this was like an act of God. But have you in fact been getting claims and what has been your overall approach if you have been? Um, thus far, no claims. We have had, as I mentioned very early on, change orders um, that pertain to um, COVID. Um, most of which we've um, allowed, if you will, because entirely legitimate and within the um, kind of enhancements of, of uh, safety and security that were compelled that weren't anticipated by the builders because many of the projects started before COVID. So um, the, these, these, these enhancements uh, in safety and security do carry additional costs. Um, there have been a few um, requests for change orders that we found to be a bit specious and a little bit of a stretch as regards uh, the impact to the project. Um, but we were able to uh, successfully set those aside. Good. All right. Well, I wish you continuing good luck with them because you probably have not seen the last of them. <laughs> I hope you're. I hope you're right, and thank you for that sentiment. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck, guys. That, that's all I'll ask for now. So, on behalf of the Easter team, I'd like to thank uh, the commission this morning for the opportunity to present the project. Um, and unless there's uh, other questions, um, again, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Are there any more questions? Looks like no. Um, I'd just like to remind everyone, thank, thanks for that presentation, everyone. And Lauren, those were excellent questions. I, I like the like active question and answer during the presentation. It's really informative. And just a a reminder, if anyone has facility tours or open houses, please let the rest of the committee members know. That piqued my uh, hearing there when I heard that. So just reach out to all of us so we all have the opportunity to join. Um, could be really interesting. That's Absolutely, it. be more than happy to make that available to you. Great, thank you. Any other committee member questions? We can move on to public comment if not. Thank you. 
Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 187-735-7669, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you be, may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. So I'm checking the caller queue and I do not see anyone with their hand raised. So may I close public comment for this item and move on to item five? Yeah. Item five, presentation from the city services auditor regarding the whistleblower program liaison re report on whistleblower program and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation and report. I believe we have Dave Jensen presenting today. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Mark De La Rosa from the controller's office. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Dave Jensen is unable to uh, to join us this morning. However, I'm joined by our acting manager, Tiffany Wong, as well as our senior auditor, investigator, Steven Munoz, who will be presenting today uh, some of the key highlights from our fiscal year 2021 um, whistleblower program updates and some of the activities and initiatives uh, going into the new fiscal year. Um, we last came before um, this committee uh, back in March, 2021. Uh, today, we'll just be giving you some highlights of our Q4 and annual report. Uh, we're currently still working on the uh, public-facing report, which we hope to issue uh, in the next few days uh, sometime this week. Um, and with that, let me turn it over to both Tiffany Wong and Stephen Munoz. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, commissioners. Um, my name is Tiffany Wong. As Mark said, I am the acting audit manager for the Office of Controllers Whistleblower Program, and I'm stepping in for our program manager, Dave Jensen. I am pleased to present today's update on the Whistleblower Program's recent activities and initiatives. Next slide, please. I wanted to provide a quick overview of our whistleblower program statutory authority, which is derived from both state and city law. The authority for our program investigations are derived from the California government code section 53087.6, the San Francisco Charter Appendix F, and the San Francisco Campaign and Governmental Conduct Code Article 4. Next slide, please. Per the San Francisco Charter, the whistleblower program has jurisdiction over specific matters. The whistleblower program shall investigate or otherwise attempt to resolve reports concerning a misuse of city funds, improper activities by city officers and employees, deficiencies in the quality and delivery of government services, and wasteful and inefficient government practices. Also, per the Charter, the Whistleblower Program does not have jurisdiction over specific matters, and the Whistleblower Program must refer certain matters in which another city department is required to investigate by federal, state, or local law, matters which may be resolved through a grievance mechanism established by the bargaining unit or contract, 
investigations that involve criminal law, violations of criminal law, investigations that are subject to an existing investigation, and investigations that allege violation of governmental ethics laws. Our whistleblower program is staffed by a diverse group of individuals within our office, including Dave Jensen, who is a program manager, myself, Errol Carr, Stephen Munoz, Matthew Thomas, William Zhao, Majida Wesley, and our newest member, Anthony Aldana. We are comprised of individuals with varied backgrounds, including people who are investigators by trade, um, auditors, um, a few of us are certified fraud examiners, um, policy analysts, and we also have a college debate champion on staff, as well as um, a licensed attorney. Next slide, please. Since July 1st, 2012, we have received an increasing number of reports over the previous fiscal year. Looking at this graph, our whistleblower program report rebounded in fiscal year 2021 for a total of 668 complaints received this fiscal year, um, with one caveat which we will address shortly. Next slide, please. At the close of um, the last fiscal year, we had 105 complaints open. As mentioned, there were in this past year, 668 reports received, and we closed 720 reports this fiscal year. At the close of fiscal year 2020 to fiscal year 2021, we have a total of 53 reports open. As you can tell, the whistleblower program was able to significantly reduce the number of open complaints in the last fiscal year. And this reduction occurred during a time when our staffing priorities had shifted to cost recovery. Next slide, please. This graph shows how whistleblower program receives its reports through different means, online, via mail, email, phone, and fax. And some reports come anonymously and others do not. In fiscal year 2020 to 2021, 67% of reporters chose to remain anonymous. The vast majority of reporters continue to choose to file the reports online, a trend that has increased during the COVID pandemic. Um, please note that due to the pandemic, we have not been able to have any walk-ins. Next slide, please. The whistleblower program strives to close out 75% of our complaint reports within 90 days. For um, this last fiscal year, 82% of our reports were closed within 90 days. Factors that can cause a report to stay on our books longer than the 90 days include a complexity of the topic involved and the number of allegations involved or the agency or department. Next slide, please. In fiscal year 2020 and 2021, the program also saw an uptick in the number of matters we were unable to investigate with the information presented to us. Um, and this includes, um, but 49% um, of reports closed this fiscal year were investigated. And um, we can say that we were receiving complaints with 
um, links only, and there was insufficient information to investigate further. And we received as many as five to six in a given day. So the whistleblower program does carefully consider every complaint received, and to the extent that we are able to, we investigate the matters received. Next slide, please. Um, this is a um, list of the disposition of closed reports. Again, you will know an increase in the number of reports we received where there was no investigation, as I mentioned earlier. Um, next slide, please. This graph is a graphical representation of the percentage of investigative reports that that resulted in corrective or preventative action. And as you can see, the number has stared fairly, stayed pretty consistent over the years. In this last fiscal year, we had 34% of our complaints that resulted in corrective or preventative action. Next slide, please. As far as our fiscal year 2021-2022 initiatives, for investigations, our goal is to close 75% of cases within 90 days. And just to know, in this last fiscal year, we were able to um, beat that number where we closed 82% of our complaints within 90 days. We will also, um, we will continue issuing our quarterly public reports on the status of program activities. And we also are continuing ongoing efforts to ensure our best-in-class whistleblower program. This includes training department liaisons on conducting investigations, learning from, and providing information to peer jurisdictions. Also hosting two national webinars to promote leading fraud hotline operational practices and effective investigation techniques to local, state, federal, and tribal governments, as well as administering the public integrity tip line to assist a city attorney on related investigations. Um, so we also um, have on this list um, that is not here, we just implemented a new case management system that's fully operational and we um, are continuing to represent, um, present our material at different um, areas. We just finished our um, presentation with SS State and we are working on our webinar and liaison training. Next slide, please. Um, there are new efforts this fiscal year that we are working toward. Um, for instance, there is now a mandated whistleblower training for all city employees. There also is a new change to our charter referral procedures, as well as an ongoing review and revision of all whistleblower program policies, processes, and collateral materials. Next slide. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please contact at the uh, contact us. And here is a uh, recent bulletin for our whistleblower program. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you, Tiffany. I'm the liaison for the whistleblower program. So, um, do we take public comment on the presentation first, or should I make my comments? We take public comment after your comments. Thanks. Okay. So Tiffany, I know Dave isn't here today, but can you just give a little more information to the committee or background on the nuisance complaints that we talked about? 
Um, they've caused a spike in numbers of complaints that we've received that have gone uninvestigated. So it's important for people to understand what they are and, and why they're going un uninvestigated, if you can explain. Sure, to the extent that I can provide additional information. So we have received a spike in complaints that have provided insufficient information for us to provide to investigate further as well as um, they are out of our jurisdiction. And when I say insufficient information, we received a host of complaints that had links alone with no further um, investigation. Even when clicking those links, there was no information provided. We have a mechanism to try to reach out to these reporters when they file anonymously, and we have done so, and no additional information was provided. And do we have any theories or philosophies on why we're receiving such a spike of nuisance complaints? Um, we currently don't have um, any explanation only in that we received it, but we treat every complaint um, very sensitively and make sure that it goes through our typical triage process. Great. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I've spoken to Dave in more detail about these, these complaints um, that don't warrant or don't, don't make it possible to investigate. Um, and I have a lot of confidence that they've been handled well. I've looked at some of them and I, I can agree that if, if there's something that can be investigated, it is. And, and for a lot of these complaints, um, there doesn't seem to be any information even given, um, which is a change from what, it, from what the program used to receive. It's just a big jump in numbers. Um, We've talked about different reasons why that may be happening. Um, maybe, maybe that's something that's kept offline. Um, but if anybody has any questions would like to speak to me directly, I'd be happy to speak to them. Um, and my only other update for this program is that PEG has assigned um, has assigned um, an employee. She's an analyst in the performance group that I have spoken to, and we are in the process of forming a RFP for the program to be independently reviewed. Um, so we're working on that. It's something that we've talked about doing for a long time, but it was postponed due to all of the city resources from this being taken for COVID emergency response, I think. Um, but now that I think some of the COVID emergency stuff has shut down. I'm not sure exactly how you would explain it. Maybe Peg can explain it better, but we've gotten some resources back to be able to focus some more of our time on a whistleblower program review. So we've started that, but unfortunately it's, I think she said a 13 to 14 week process just to form the RFP. So even though the ball is rolling, we still expect that it'll take some time to, to move to the next step of that. And that's my whole program update. I have a question. Sure. Thank you. This uh, for Tiffany and for you, Siobhan, um, slide number 12. So about three back from, right, that's it. So maybe you answered it with your comments about nuisance complaints, but what happened, you know, it, 
So 34% resulted in corrective or preventive action, which means that 66% did not, which is a huge number. So why do two thirds of investigative reports not result in any corrective or preventive action? Are they all quote nuisance complaints? I mean, what happens? What, what tell me about those that 66%? Sure, Commissioner Post. So um, just to provide a little bit of background, in this percentage of 34%, it does not include the nuisance complaints that we were referring to. These include the complaints that were kept in-house, that were investigated um, and closed. I will um, also mention these also don't include the ones that were mandated to refer out to charter jurisdiction. And so it's hard to explain um, why certain complaints are substantiated or result in corrective or preventative action because we can't control what complaints come in at um, any given fiscal year. So it is also hard to say, um, you know, you have theories because of the COVID pandemic, what kinds of complaints were coming in and uh, individuals not being in the workplace or having more um, in-person interaction, but it's, hard to theorize why the complaint um, substantiation rate is as it has been in the last um, last few fiscal years. So um, hopefully that answers your question um, in that we can't control what complaints came in and the complaints that came in that were kept and investigated resulted in certain corrective and preventive action. And I will note that the controller's office is an objective and program in that we do not determine whether corrective action is taken. We make recommendations and the department is the one that confirms that they believe corrective action is warranted. Right. So maybe it was another slide then to break out that 66% better because I'm still not perhaps understanding your answer or else I'm not happy with your answer. Um, and, and I understand a certain percentage get bumped out to, to other jurisdictions. I got that, okay, so that'll be a portion of that 66%. But I don't, you know, there'll be a portion that are frivolous or nuisance, or as you said, they're anonymous, they say nothing, there's nothing you could do. But, but these are those that are investigated, right? I presume those nuisance ones aren't even investigated. Correct. So these are investigated reports. So few result in anything, even though maybe you don't know of all the actions because you said it's up to the departments themselves to take, okay, I got that also, but it, it's still, am I missing something? Uh, can someone help me understand this better? Because yeah, to me, it doesn't look like a good number. I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'll just very quickly um, uh, through the chair, committee member post. Um, so as uh, Tiffany mentioned, really the uh, 60, is it 66% um, of the uh, remaining ones that are investigated and that did not result in corrective or preventative actions, a uh, portion of that are those that are not substantiated. So those that we actually investigated and that we deemed um, uh, that there wasn't um, anything uh, to back up any of the uh, the, the complainants' uh, information. Um, also, a portion of the 66% uh, uh, would be, uh, as uh, Tiffany mentioned, um, are you know even if they were substantiated, it was definitely um, as we have taken in the past 
up to the departmental um, host to um, determine what corrective actions should be taken. So a portion really of, of that um, is just really driven by those that are not substantiated and those that are, um, uh, um, are maybe substantiated, but um, were left up to the department uh, to determine uh, the corrective action. I don't know if that was uh, helpful and I'll defer to uh, uh, the chair if you wanted to. Uh, That's exactly uh, what I was gonna say. Some are some of the reports are investigated and closed with either no, no substantiating evidence or no wrongdoing found. A large percentage? Um, we can probably have Dave present those exact numbers or circulate them to the committee if you'd like. Do you want us to do that, Lauren? You know, I guess I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, you know, it's it's great if most of them aren't more, you know, don't result aren't needed. No actions are needed. Yeah, not would not be great if most of them do warrant action. I'm just trying to get a handle on on what. I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Someone's unhappy and shoots something off that it isn't really, it doesn't warrant, you know, an investigation. I got that, but um, Mark, correct to... correct me if I'm wrong, but some of some of these complaints, if they come in through the whistleblower program and they overlap with the public integrity investigations, they would be referred to um, the city attorney or the FBI or whoever's handling those specific complaints also, is that correct? There's other bodies at work here. So our department handles a, exactly. a certain percentage of the complaints that come in. Right. Um, so, right. And city attorney is, is definitely uh, one of those um, entities that we would refer. Um, the the, the uh, cases reports that really fall under their jurisdiction. Uh, district attorney is, is another. Um, uh, the um, Department of uh, Human Resources, our Civil Service Commission, Ethics Commission. Uh, we do refer uh, uh, those types of um, uh, uh, reports within their jurisdictions to their respective uh, departments. Chair McHugh, if I may um, provide a little bit more yes. information. And so um, just to committee member Post's comment, I mean, when we receive complaints, and these are ones that are kept within the program, the ones that are not getting charter referred out, we receive the facts as they are, and we will go where the facts lead us if that makes sense. And so the com we can't control the intake of what kinds of complaints come in, but um, please be assured that if a complaint comes in with facts that are being warranted, we make sure that appropriate it is appropriately handled. Um, if we feel that the department should have taken corrective action, we push back and ask the department what further steps had gone into their determination. Great, thank you. The chair, <laughs> I have a question on this. Uh, on this, so I'm looking at the chart that's in front of us now. So, def so define no investigation. Sure. So when we say no investigation, a complaint was received and we determined there was insufficient information to go forward. A uh, prime example is what I had mentioned earlier, where um, we receive complaints with only links and the links do not lead us to any substantial allegation. So in, each, in our triage process, first we review the complaint 
to identify the allegations. If we're unable to formulate what allegations there are, if any, we and the complaint comes in anonymously, as many of these complaints come in, we post a tracking message for additional information. Absent that additional information, we cannot investigate further, we cannot formulate any allegations, and it can't be moved. So when you see that category of no investigation, we are forced to close the complaint because no further action can be taken with the information provided. And okay. can I just so, add so you actually investigated. You actually investigated, even though it says no investigation. I just, I think maybe that was kind of a, you know, there is an investigation on that complaint. It just turns up nothing substantial. Correct. Yeah, or it's received and processed. But just one thing that Tiffany mentioned that I just want to emphasize is that there's numerous ways that people can file a whistleblower complaint and anonymity is important and confidentiality is important. And if they choose to provide contact information, um, they can, but if they choose to make a complaint anonymously, that's also um, a, a method that a lot of people do. And if they don't provide adequate information or, um, or contact information to reach back out to them to request necessary information, then it, it cannot be investigated. But if a complainant submits information that's inadequate, but gives their contact information, they will be contacted by the department to further investigate if, if that information is possible to receive. Is that correct, Tiffany? Um, I will say that there are different disclosure categories. So yes, when we are able to provide that information, we act as the coordinator between the department and the reporter. Um, or if the reporter is comfortable with it, we forward on their information um, in compliance with our confidentiality measures to the department. And I have another uh, question or comment. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, so this someone files a complaint, it's investigated, and there is some substantial evidence. The whistleblower program makes a recommendation to the department. It's up to the department to take it or not. So a whistleblower could have a complaint, could have whistleblower programs say, yeah, there should be some corrective measures here, but that department not make those corrective measures. I'll take a step back. So pursuant to your campaign governmental conduct code, article four, section 4.107E, we can um, refer departments to investigate a complaint at any stage. So we could have done the initial triaging, which I mentioned, where we identify the allegations and um, then refer it to the department. And there are other stages where we take the investigation a bit further. And then we have um, certain preliminary findings, which we provide to the department in either a department referral or in the past, we've also done a department memo. And at that point, the department can determine whether they need to do further investigation to develop those findings if they or they confirm our findings and follow up with those recommendations. In the event that we issue a formal memo and have recommendations that the department take 
um, corrective action of some sort. Um, and remember, we are objective, so we can't say um, you must counsel the employee or you must terminate the employee, nothing like that. Um, if anything, determine whether corrective action is warranted. So to the extent that we recommend corrective action be taken, um, I don't think we make that definitive point. But if we feel that, and we've issued a, let's say, if we issued a memo, um, the department would have to, per our campaign environmental conduct code and charter provisions, they would have to um, provide evidence or information as to why they did not believe um, a recommendation should be implemented or did not follow. But typically, our recommendations are not so specific. Okay, I just want to see if there's actually teeth to this program. You know, for for the person who's reporting for the person who might be suffering uh, some type of, uh, you know, bad conduct, that there's some teeth to them bringing it up and not, you know, suffering more. So that was all. I appreciate the explanation. Thank you. Any other committee member questions? Should we move to public comment? Yes. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 187-735-7669, and then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak a system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. So I'm looking at the caller queue and I do not see anyone with their hand raised. So um, Madam Chair, may I move on to item six? Please. Opportunity for the committee members to comment or take action on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction. Number one, fiscal year 2021-2022, CGOVAC work initiatives, A, standardized templates, B, housing public perception survey, C, independent review of the whistleblower program. Number two, other committee business, A, public finance upcoming bond issuances, B, expenditure audits, C, public integrity reviews, D, CSA fiscal year 2021-2022 work plan, E, C, GOVOC fiscal year 2021-2022 work plan, and F, C, GOVOC annual report. Hi, everyone. This is Peg Stevenson. I'm the performance director in the controller's office. Just as a reminder to everyone, we keep all of these sub items on your agenda, but I'll only speak to the couple where we have anything significant to speak to today since I know we're over time. Um, I'm skipping over standardized templates. On the Housing Public Perception Survey, my staff person, Catherine Amalev, has met with Jane Natoli to begin discussion of the scope of work there, so they will be underway. And um, I will check on the timing of that, but we should be able to share with you um, by the time of your next meeting, a draft scope of work and other progress points on uh, doing the housing public perception survey. Um, as uh, 
uh, Chair McHugh mentioned, the uh, Catherine is also working on the independent review of the whistleblower program. Um, she's a very capable contract administrator, and I'm sure she will move it along as expeditiously as possible. And again, we should have the beginnings of a scope of work, and we'll look at any places where we can condense the calendar to try and get that RFP um, out the door as quickly as possible. Um, moving on to other committee business, I'll stop and ask um, Anna Van Degna or Vishal Trivedi to speak to the upcoming calendar of bond issuances. Good morning, uh, members of the committee. Uh, this is Vishal Dhrithi from the Office of Public Finance. Uh, as you have in your packet, uh, there's a, a memo of our forward calendar. As you can see, uh, it's this is what we anticipate for the, the rest of uh, this fiscal year. There aren't many uh, anticipated issuances, and the reason for that is because we just closed uh, successfully the issuance of uh, bonds for three different uh, geo bond programs, including uh, transportation and road improvement. That was the final issuance for the 2014 authorization. Uh, we did the first issuance for the 2020 health and recovery bond. And uh, also, I believe uh, Charles Higueras from Public Works had mentioned the second issuance of ESER 2020 bonds. Uh, that was also uh, issued. We just closed the sale for all three of those about uh, two and a half weeks ago. And I think as the funds uh, are getting released from the controller's reserve, they'll be accessible to the um, the, the pro project departments in, in order to spend. Uh, uh, so I, I believe you'll you'll get a report on, on the progress for those issuances probably in the next uh, reports for, for each of those programs. Uh, so the uh, upcoming issuances we expect for the rest of this fiscal year, uh, a follow-up issuance for health and recovery, the, a few of their projects, uh, I think, we needed to get some additional certainty on the expenditure um, plans for those. Uh, so we expect probably in the spring uh, some of the acquisitions for uh, the homelessness projects and um, and uh, other other project uh, departments will firm up for, for DPH and homelessness primarily. So we'll issue another tranche of health and recovery bonds uh, in the spring. And we're also expecting the uh, next sale of seawall bonds also in the spring. And uh, depending on the, uh, the bond market uh, later on uh, in, in this fiscal year, we may issue some more refunding bonds if we can achieve uh, our savings target of 3%. So those are, those are the issuances we have, uh, we're expecting in the, the remainder of fiscal year 21-22. Uh, I'll be happy to take any questions if you have any. Okay, I don't see any questions on that. Thanks, Vishal. Thanks, Anna. Um, Mark De La Rosa, any comment on B, expenditure audits, or C, public integrity reviews? Uh, good morning, everyone. Just very quickly on the uh, expenditure audits, we have completed 10 uh, to date. Um, uh, we do have one that's currently planned for the fiscal year. Uh, currently, FY 21-22, which is the uh, 2018 seawall safety improvement. Uh, we hope to uh, begin that in Q2 of this uh, fiscal year, and then issuance uh, tentatively uh, set for uh, either March or April of uh, 2022. Uh, for the public integrity report, um, we completed our sixth uh, report uh, that we issued earlier this month, um, which was a 12-month update on the implementation status of 
uh, public integrity recommendations that we've issued so far. Um, that report basically looked at all um, 34 recommendations that we've issued uh, as part of our public integrity reporting. Uh, 32 of those uh, th um, 34 are either implemented or are in progress. Uh, we are closely tracking uh, the uh, status of each and every one of them um, and we'll uh, be reporting out again in the, uh, the months ahead. Uh, we're currently working on um, uh, three uh, different uh, public integrity reports, uh, one on the Department of Building Inspection uh, that we uh, are planning on issuing in September, um, another one at the uh, Public Utilities Commission, which we hope to issue, plan to issue in December, um, and then our citywide ethics reporting requirements uh, report that we hope to issue uh, thereafter, so uh, either January or February of 2022. Any questions or comments for Mark? Seeing none, thank you, Mark. Um, the CSA work plan, I would, I'm going to pass over. We have a reporting event coming up with you later in the fall. The C GoBox own work plan. Um, Roseanne, could you give me the presenter ball for a moment so I can put that calendar up on the screen? Okay, are you seeing my screen now? Yes, but that the the bottom chart's really hard to read. Yeah. Um, it bigger at all? Let me see if I can put it on the landscape view. Is that better? It's but we're not seeing anything right now. I hope no one says it's better. <laughs> okay, we're getting better. If you could widen that shot at all. Yeah, I the orientation of my monitor is um, so I'll just if you can just see the this is all included in your packet. I'll just say a couple things briefly about it. It's not critical. We've mapped out each date for your meetings going forward. Um, so you can see the dates there today, and then October 25th, December 6th. February 28th, April 25th, and June 6th. And then we've put in the calendar that we anticipate for the bond program presentations. So you recall we discussed this last year. Each bond program has one full presentation of the type that you experienced from Easter this morning, where you have the bond program managers, they're going through detail, showing scope, schedule, and budget, progress slides, answering any questions from you and the liaison. So that happens once a year. And then at the most um, round the clock opposite moment, six months later, there's a liaison report on that same bond program where you as the liaisons would be reporting on um, a hopefully recent meeting update with the bond program manager or a site visit or anything else you might have done in preparation for the liaison report. 
When you're doing a liaison report, you can always ask the bond program manager to join you if there are any questions that um, you wanna have them there for. But the notion here is that we'd have a full program report once a year and then six months later, a liaison report with any augmenting um, content that you want. So that calendar is shown for all of the bonds. Um, and then we have whistleblower reporting twice a year, uh, this event, and then six months later, give or take in on February 28th. Um, we have CSA doing the same thing. We'll report in December and then again in June. Um, the capital program where you have Brian Strong or his counterpart coming to present on the city's overall capital program will report once a year. That's scheduled for April. Um, your standing items will be on the calendar um, every time. Each of these dates is on a fourth Monday, except for December and June, which are on second Mondays to help relieve um, holiday scheduling in the case of December and fiscal year end scheduling in the case of June. So um, hopefully this is a pretty well fleshed out picture of how your year of um, committee meetings would look. I did go over it with the chairs earlier, but um, any comments or questions that people might have, um, happy to, to discuss. We can always amend it later during the year if anything wants to change. So I'm going to take this one down. I just wanted to say thanks, Peg, for putting that together. It's really helpful and instructive to kind of see out in advance. So I appreciate it. Great. Um, Okay, so last but not least, um, the planning for your annual report. Um, and again, I will share the screen with this calendar and I think it will be a little bit more clear. Can everybody see that one a little bit better scale? Okay, so um, you have your own annual report. We just put notes up here as we discussed this at your last meeting earlier this spring, and we adjusted the calendar um, as requested by the chairs and yourselves so that you're not trying to rush out a report too quickly. Um, and so I won't go over all this content just given the late time, but suffice to say that um, this report will touch on a two-year period. Each liaison is expected to give a brief narrative write-up on the program that they are liaison to. Um, and you've done that before. We can circulate a, 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 another copy of last year, or last time's report if people um, have trouble finding that. Um, those reports are due to be submitted to the chair and vice chair by you as liaisons on September 17th. At the same time, myself and uh, Mark De La Rosa will be submitting the content that we're, we are responsible for, so highlights from our programs, and a summary schedule with scope, schedule, and budget that we'll attach so that the public, when they view a report, has um, overall financial and scope, um, uh, scope, schedule, and budget information there. Um, we will work to uh, consolidate all that material, get it into one editorial voice, have it formatted properly, and all the rest of it so that a draft will be available to be circulated with your October meeting materials. You'll review it at your October meeting and hopefully if it's good and there are no changes, you can finalize it at that meeting and we can issue it around November. 
Um, so the key thing, again, just to note from this is that each of you as liaisons need to write a brief narrative report on the um, work that you've been doing as a liaison. Certainly, um, well, the chairs can speak to this, but not more than a page, um, probably less than a page in most cases. So it should be pretty straightforward. But um, that September 17th deadline is key. And I will send out a couple of reminders um, every couple of weeks um, leading up to that so people have it have a ping. Any questions or comments for me or the chairs on that? I guess I would just um, add, thank you, Peg, that to make it easy for the committee members, not that we need to have our hands held, but if you could hold our hands, I would maybe just send an email to all the committee members with a copy of the most recent report with the deadline clear, just to save Siobhan and Jane time from having to ping everybody on September 20th saying, where's your report? It's due September 17th. So just an email with Liaison reports due September 17th. Here's a copy of the last one so you can see what's required, if you don't mind. Yeah, just yeah. That's Thank a good you. idea. No, I'm happy to do that. And I can attach a template document, just a plain one in Word, if that would make it easier for people. Um, and again, please don't spend time formatting or making graphics or anything like that, since we will want to be consolidating everything. Just a, your simple narrative text is what we'll be looking for. But it's a good idea. Um, I will do that. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, if there's no more questions or comments on that, um, we are done. And Roseanne, you can take public comment on the item. Thank you. Um, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 187-735-7669, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. So seeing as we have no attendees right now, um, there's no one to give public comment. So I think we can close public comment. Great. Can we adjourn the meeting? Oh, yes. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Can I adjourn the meeting? Yeah, thank, thank you, everyone. <laughs> meeting is adjourned at 12.03. Great, thanks, everyone.